Welcome to the show, Me, Myself, and TBI, Facing Traumatic Brain Injury Head-On. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. I am a traumatic brain injury survivor, and my guest today survived what can only be described as a horrific brain injury. But she's emerged from that journey stronger and has become a vocal, outspoken force to be reckoned with advocate for people impacted by traumatic brain injury. Former professional skier, Jamie Mo Crazy, the first woman to double flip in a slope style ski run. In 2015, at the World Ski and Snowboard Festival in Whistler, Canada, the World Tour Finals, upon landing, Jamie whiplashed her head into the snow when it caught an edge of her ski. The resulting injury caused her brain to bleed in eight different areas. She fell into a coma, was paralyzed on her right side, and as she was being airlifted off the mountain, doctors prepared to tell her family she had no chance of surviving. Her award-winning documentary, Mo Crazy Strong, is at times heartbreaking as you watch a young lady who was destined for the Olympics struggle to walk, talk, and remember her former self. But it also serves as a beautiful reminder of the power of love in the face of tragedy. Jamie joined me from her home in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the show. It's so great, so great to talk to you today. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. What a a harrowing uh, story. And we are going to get there. We're going to jump right into that in a few moments. But I feel like before we get to that day in 2015, I want to talk about what led you to the ski slopes in the first place. My understanding, you were on skis as early as one year old. Is that right? That is right. Yes. I um, started skiing when I was a year old because it, skiing actually passes down through my family um, from my great grandmother to my grandmother, who is a World Cup downhill champion, to my mom and me. And and um, my mom started not because she wanted me um, to become a professional and had dreams of that. She started me because she wanted to go outside and play with her babies on the snow. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you did more than play. Uh, I, I I saw a video in which your mom talks about the introduction to skiing starting as early as one and that you were being, you were doing Black Diamond downhill as early as three three years old is that right yeah I picked up skiing really quickly um I could scale over the mountain at a very young age so I don't actually remember that so my whole childhood introduction to skiing I have no memory of um when I when I go back in my mind I was already a skier and I was already competitive and I was performing I was competing in different things. I was putting on performances from my family, and I was a skier, which is interesting because um, fast forward to what we're going to talk more about, but my brain injury, I don't remember any of that either. So there's a lot in my life that has been very important into helping define who I am today that I actually don't remember. 
you don't remember and yet you know that it's critical in the making of who you are. Yes, exactly. That's a very well, well put. <laughs> That's remarkable. That's really amazing. And I also understand that at an early age, you were involved in gymnastics, which was really a precursor to um, how you so quickly became successful as a freestyle skier. So when did you start in gymnastics? I started gymnastics similar to skiing when I was like two years old. Before my memory, I started in little gymboree classes. And so I start. I started, you know, a lot of parents just take their kids to do little tumbling classes. And then I loved it and I excelled at it. So I started into the competitive program and um, I started competing. And when I was still in single digits, like, six, seven, eight, I was competing in gymnastics and competing in ski racing. Oh, wow. When did you know, though, that skiing was really where your heart was at and and where you would find the most amount of success, professional success? That was probably when I was um, in my teenage years. I, I loved gymnastics. So when I was back six, seven, eight competing, I had my mindset that I wanted to go to the Olympics and I would do whatever it took to go to the Olympics. And I wasn't sure which sport that was going to be because I was on a premier soccer team. Um, and I actually went to Christine Lilly's uh, soccer camp and I won VIP of the camp because I headed a corner kick into the goal. Um, and I was a really competitive gymnast and I won when I was nine state championships in, in gymnastics in the same year, state championships in skiing. And at that time I did say my goal was to combine skiing and gymnastics. So I, I knew that I loved them both and skiing did kind of give me a freedom Um, I think it gave me more of a freedom than the other sports that I was doing, but I wasn't 100% dead set on. Say that again. You said you weren't 100% dead. I wasn't 100% set on pursuing just skiing. I continued to do gymnastics. Um, And it was interesting because actually when I was like 10, 11, 12, um, my gymnastics teacher just wanted me to do gymnastics and my ski coach just wanted me to do skiing but I continued to do both because I loved to flip and I loved to ski so it it took me a, a while to combine the two and realize that there was something that was flipping on snow and part of that was because um slope style and half pipe skiing didn't even go to the X Games when I was a child. Like they didn't even exist. And then when they started going to the X Games for a decade, they were male only sports. So only men competed in the X Games. And so about the time that I started doing it was still close to the beginning of its evolution of actually becoming a competitive sport. Some There's some local legends that have done it before it was competitive and before it was x games they would just flip on the snow or spin on the snow um but i was kind of at the beginning of it becoming competitive when when did you realize that that was something that you actually wanted to focus on and zero in on 
I'm going to own this, this sport, this competition? Well, it actually happened very quickly in, in that regard. So it, it, like I mentioned, it took years of kind of doing both. But um, when I was at my first year at a school called Holderness Prep School, and I was ski racing there, and I was convinced to go to trampoline camp and switch into freestyle. And that summer um, was my first ever water ramp camp. Water ramp is when you slide down plastic and you flip with your skis on into water. And so I went there and like my first day, I learned how to do a front flip. My third day, I learned how to do a back flip. And by the fifth day, I was auditioning with the aerial development team. And I was told I could stay living at the Olympic Training Center all fall and join the team and my lodging would be covered and give it a go. And I was like, yep, I gave it a go. So it literally was like within a week um, became a career. And then I was training every single day on it. So that first winter, I was already podiuming at events and my career was taking off. For people who aren't familiar with this style of skiing, explain to us exactly what differentiates this from, you know, what most people think of skiing, which is I'm just going downhill. And, you know, in my case, I just don't want to fall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so slope style is multiple jumps and rails and you're judged on the overall impression you spin to the left to the right you take off backwards and then you slide down rails which are like pieces of metal that you slide and do switch ups and and tricks on um, and you're judged on the impression of your whole run so degree of difficulty as well as execution and then for half pipe, it's half of a tube made out of snow and you go up and you do tricks in the air on either either side of the wall. And similar to slope style, you're judged on overall impression. So whether you're spinning to the left or to the right adds to the degree of difficulty and it's your whole run that you're judged on. And when you when you start on this, I mean, just hearing you talk about it, you can hear the excitement. But when you're starting... How much of that excitement is also just muted by the danger that you're embarking on as well? Well, it was interesting because I love adrenaline rushes. Um, It's actually something interesting because we've had some talks with other brain injury survivors about the difference between an adrenaline rush and doing something that you think is definitely going to be dangerous. Um, So what I mean by that is like, when you're walking out on the stage as a motivational speaker, which is what I do now, and and you have an audience of a 1000 people in front of you, you get a rush, like you want to and that rush will allow you to perform to the best degree that you can perform at. And the same thing with competing and skiing and things like that when you're when you're doing a new trick, you get that adrenaline rush. And it's very similar to anxiety or fear, but it, it, it it's not the same. But you'll see people who are exceptional at com- competition or performance, and they know how to harness it and use that energy, that dopamine to the best that it can be used. And then also that same uh, dopamine can be used for anxiety, which is why a lot of people after a brain injury really struggle 
um, with the emotional side of things because their dopamine doesn't know if they should be on guard and terrified all the time or if they should relax and get excited for yeah, things. It's that perpetual fight or flight, uh, fight or yeah. flight mode. Yeah. Whereas anxiety and fear is crippling, uh, keeps you from, from doing the things that you want to do. What you're talking about is the adrenaline was actually motivating uh, for mm-hmm. you. Were there any falls prior to the big one, the one that we're going to be discussing? Were there any falls even just in the the, the training period or, or, or prior to the one in 2015 that you look back on and, and, and think that those were um, significant as well? Yes, there were. Um, so I actually tore my ACL twice. Um, so I had to get ACL surgery. Um, and I've, I actually had two concussions that I blacked out at. Um, and one of the things that's uh, really interesting is that for both my concussions, after I blacked out, even though this was like a decade ago, so there was less of an understanding of what to do for concussions, since my mom um, has a master's in psychology and studied early childhood brain development, and she's been super involved with neuroplasticity for like the past 20 years, way before my accident. Um, so when I got concussions, she knew some of the things to have me do. Um, and like my my nutrition and to stay away from electronics, but still, um, she actually would promote that I do really gentle things like walking, which now people have seen that with peer-reviewed research, um, when you have a concussion, you no longer want to just sit in the dark and turn everything off because then your heart rate's not pumping, your blood's not flowing through your body as fast. So it actually doesn't heal as well as if you do gentle things like, like walking. Um, but that's what she would have me do. And, and I remember, um, after one of, one of my concussions, um, and, and obviously drink no alcohol, and I was 21 and a couple of my friends, I was like a couple uh, days out of it and I felt pretty fine. And they were like, oh, no one will know, like drink, ha- have some out, al- like have some alcohol. Um, why, like, why are you taking this so seriously? It doesn't really matter. You knew not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. In 2015, and obviously we're going to get there. Let's talk about your career leading up to 2015 because- you peaked really quickly. I mean, you had a very ambitious goal, uh, which were the Olympics, correct? And, and how optimistic were you about, about meeting that goal? So just educate the audience a little bit on the various competitions and the titles that you were holding going into 2015, what you had done thus far. Yes. So I had the first year I was at junior Olympics. Um, I, got second at two events. And then the next year I won the overall, I won aerials, I won slope style, got third in half pipe. And I went to junior Olympics. Um, no, sorry. <clears throat> I went to junior world championships in New Zealand that summer. Um, and I won junior world championships. And so I actually was talking with the International Olympic Committee about adding slope style to the Olympics because it wasn't 
even an Olympic sport at the time. Um, and the IOC was there because they were thinking about adding it to the next Olympics, which was 2014, which they did add it to. Um, and then I went to the X Games. Um, I became the first woman in the world to double flip. I I went to European X Games. So they only choose eight girls out of the entire world to go to X Games. And I had been ranked um, first or second overall in the world for three years prior to 2015. Um, and actually, 2014 was one of the times when I hurt my knee. Um, so I didn't go to the Olympics. And I was dead set that I was, you know, I, I was only 21. I had a long career ahead of me. Um, even though skiing's not that long, it's <laughs> still long enough. Yeah, but at 21, um, you, then, you know that you and, still had a few more competitions, Olympic level competitions ahead of you. Exactly. And then um, I had my brain injury. And by brain injury, I was pretty positive that I was going to go to the Olympics and um that's been one of the things that has been psychologically challenging for me right after my brain injury doing the recovery but sometimes it's still challenging and at this point I have made enough changes and um my brain has experienced enough plasticity that I don't believe that my struggles with um Fear of thinking something's going to happen and it getting ripped away, that ha obviously has to do with my trauma, but it's not directly correlated to my brain injury. I see. When you go into these competitions, explain what it takes in order to to get the gold, the silver, in order to place. And, and what, what I'm getting at, it's important for the audience to understand the intensity, the severity obviously, of what you're doing. And the reason why I say this, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about some of the articles that I've read in which there are quotes from you and your sister, which is there's an expectation, right, that you got to you got to push the envelope further and further and further because of the scoring system. No one's going to remember the fourth place finisher. So if you can explain to me kind of what it takes um, to do these flips, to do these really it's flying acrobatics. I want to have an understanding of what training looks like in order to achieve these aerial acrobatics on snow. Yeah, well, some of the things that are really important to achieve these aerial acrobatics is to make sure you work through progression. So you take steps every day to learn new things. So progression is really important. So every trick you do, like when you do a 180, then you do a 360, um, which is like a full spin around, then you would do like a 540. You don't just think of these like, double corks and you're not going to get it right away. So you have these goals and you know, it has to take all these steps to get to those goals. And the steps take a lot of repetition. They take thousands and thousands of repetition of the same exact thing until you get it good enough that you can do it on all the different size jumps and all the different types of weather. Um, and so that's one of the things. So when you're going to do a competition, you know, you feel confident that you can do the tricks that you're going to do. And so you need to take some 
at least for me, what I do is I would take some deep breaths. I would visualize my eyes and take some deep breaths and um, vacate my mind, get everything out of my mind, take deep breaths and then drop in and go. And then you need to just depend on your instincts to kick in and the repetition and the training that has built up to that. What happens on April 11th, 2015? Where were you in that competition leading up to what would be this tragic fall and accident? Yeah, well, what happened on April 11th, 2015 is interesting because I honestly have no memories of the entire day. So I know that I've been told that it was the slope style competition day and it was my second run. And I was sitting in fourth place after first run. So I wanted to upgrade because I was very competitive. And I and I do have memories of my life prior to my brain injury. So I remember that I was, and I still am, very competitive and ambitious. So I know that. But the whole day, I don't have any memory of that day of competition. But I, I was dropping in and I had upgraded my off-axis backflip to an off-axis double backflip. And when I dropped in, um, my little sister actually watched this all happen and she could see my takeoff on the jump that I was double flipping, but she couldn't see my landing because of the way the mountain rolled. And then she didn't see me hit the next jump. However, that's not that unusual. It's like not hit the next jump or to fall in slope style. That that happens a lot. So she didn't really think much of it until she heard the ski patrol radio crackle to life that was right next to her. And it said, we need all hands on deck and a helicopter on standby. And in that moment, she knew it was really serious. So without a word, she and my coach put on their skis and skied down to me. And I've heard this from my sister many times now, and it still gives me shivers. The way she describes seeing me convulsing on the snow, spewing blood, and that my eyes were rolled back in my head. She said that whole experience, like she can still see it clearly in her mind. It's a memory that's never going to go away. And I didn't look like her sister. I, I looked like a, a zombie. Um, and from what I've heard from people, when they when they came to start taking care of me, I had zombie strength as well. So I was just like lifting up like 150 pound people with my with my one arm because I was just doing whatever my body wanted to, but it wasn't how you usually function. You said, Jamie, correct me if I'm wrong, you said this was your fourth run or you were saying you were in the fourth place slot at this point I was in the fourth place slot okay so do you and you said that you you felt like you needed to crank up so this next run needed to be more provocative more dynamic yes okay do you recall practicing what you had done because you you talk about your your memory being blank for that day but do you recall practicing that technique in maybe the days or weeks leading leading up to it well I I do remember like practicing double backflips and I and I do remember doing the off-axis double tricks 
um because i i had uh done it before but i have really no memory of that particular run that particular day and i don't really have much memory of the whole trip up to vancouver so like there's a couple days before my accident that i don't remember Mm. either wow that's really something so at this point it's my understanding that um as i as i said earlier that doctors are looking at you you're being airlifted to a nearby hospital you've got eight brain bleeds you're being airlifted and Mm -hmm. doctors are they're readying themselves to tell your parents that it doesn't look like you're you're going to survive um what do you recall what is your earliest memory following this so my earliest memory is a couple months later so i have a huge portion of it that i don't remember And because my family and I do so much media, I've heard my mom and my sister tell the story so many times. Um, So I I know what happened. I know that when I I arrived at Vancouver General Hospital, um, one of the doctors had just come back from Cambridge, England, I guess actually a month prior. Um, And he had learned about a procedure, which is an intracranial monitoring device um, that we call the brain bolt, where they drill into your skull and insert a device that reads your oxygen as well as your pressure level. So they had done it prior, um, just reading out the pressure level, which is how they know when to remove part of your skull. Um, But this new technique of reading out your oxygen level to your brain was new and they realized one of the days that the oxygen monitoring device on my finger said I was fine but on my brain said I was close I was one point away from permanent brain damage so because I was on electronics I wasn't doing anything for myself they increased the amount of oxygen flowing through my body and that allowed my brain to never get oxygen deprived enough that it had permanent brain damage i see so you wake up two months later um you're surrounded by your family i i read online and also saw some interviews with your mother in which um she demanded that medical staff and family and friends Um, speak to you, treat you as though at any moment you were walking out of there. In other words, she had optimism that that the doctors clearly didn't have. Can you talk a little bit about that and and some of the stories that you've heard and and, and what, if anything, you might remember about her presence and how she wanted people to interact with you while you were in a, because you're in a coma at this point. Yeah, when I was in in a coma, actually, um, One of the stories that's told a lot is one of the days my older sister um, became my primary care physician um, because she was a doctor in Connecticut, actually in New York City at the time, and um, an anesthesiologist, um, but they legally made her my primary care physician. So she was making the rounds with the doctors. And then she said legally that my mom had to make the rounds as well to give advice on how I behaved through like the family's connection to me, not the, um, medical jargon or things like that, but a a different type. Um, 
And one of the days, one of the doctors um, who was actually doing their residency, so not fully fledged yet, but wanted to make sure that they were doing everything um, and was saying how I was never going to live independently. I was never going to be normal. I was never going to survive back to who they thought I would be. And um, both my mom and my sister said, you cannot say that in front of her. You need to leave the room. You cannot say that in front of Jamie. And he was like, well, Jamie's in a coma. Like, Jamie doesn't know what I'm talking about. And they were like, get out. You cannot say that in front of her. And now there's more and more research going into the fact that when people are in comas, they do have some type of understanding. It's not as clear as like you and I on a regular basis have, but um, they do have a little bit of an understanding. And when I woke up, um, during the time when I had the serious amnesia, so I was awake from the coma, but I don't have right now any memory of that time with the amnesia. I kept saying day after day for a whole week, I just wanted to be normal. And as someone who had been a professional skier, I never was normal. So my mom was like, okay, why, why are you it's like so wanting to be normal and I was like because that guy that man said I would never be normal and I want to be normal and there's more and more studies that are showing that people have some type of recollection and experience and understanding when they are in in comas that just gave me chills I've got goosebumps right now because what you're saying is that you clearly even though you were in a coma and at this point you had not shown any signs of consciousness, any indication of communication with anyone, you're in a coma, clearly on some level you heard and understood that this resident, uh, what he had been saying to your family about you not leading a normal life, it had registered subconsciously because when you do wake up from the coma, all you're talking about is I want to be normal and your mom is asking why is there such a preoccupation around that and it's because you had indeed heard what this doctor had said when he thought that you were, you know, just in a in a coma. You had heard everything, which means that means you're taking in everything, all the energy, all the emotion, um all the highs yeah. and lows of your family even though you're in this comatose state. Yes. And that's one of the things that's really important is that when you're in a coma, you do experience things. Um, and one of the things that's actually um, in our documentary is we interview um, the doctor who actually came back from Cambridge, England to learn this procedure. And he's talking about how um, prior to my my case, he, he was under the impression that in critical coma, you needed to keep the brain completely calm. So like didn't have the family members around. You didn't want to touch patients. You didn't, didn't want to stimulate at all. You didn't want to play patients. You didn't want to do anything to excite them. And in the documentary, my mom talks about how when she was walking down the hall, my 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 machines would all go to life because I understood that it was my mom coming to see me and I would get excited. And now they actually know that that helps you come back from the coma and, and wake up again is if you have family involvement. That's amazing. That's an amazing. Oh, gosh. Oh, Jamie, did you ever think that you'd live to tell this story? I 
never really thought that I would tell this story before this story happened to me. Um, it's it's kind of interesting because I, um, before my accident, after my competitive career, because I knew you can only be a competitive athlete for, for so long <laughs> uh, that I wanted to be a motivational speaker. And I thought that I would tell people all about what it took to climb the mountain of life and get to the top. And then all of a sudden, my life changed dramatically. And after a couple of years of recovery, I started being sought after to speak and tell people how you can climb the mountain of life, get caught in a metaphorical avalanche, and then climb an alternative peak, which I think is actually much more powerful if you've had any form of success in your life and then it gets taken away how do you recreate success rebuild your identity that's really relevant for everybody because everybody has different traumas in their life and every work workplace does too things are just going along smoothly and then something will happen how do you stay relevant yeah yeah how do you shape shift um to the new reality um, so your new reality now is you're coming out of a coma and let's talk about all of the different things that you had to overcome. Um, my understanding, you had to learn how to walk, talk, eat, drink. Uh, what, what were those early days and weeks like for you when you came out of the coma? So the very early days in the hospital were lots of fun. I was pretty happy most of the time. Um, I was really giggly. I was like a silly 10-year-old. Um, and I... How, how was it fun? How was it fun coming? I mean, I guess it's fun because you've come out of the coma, but how was the rest of it fun? Well, I thought it was fun because I I didn't think I was in a hospital. I thought I was in a movie. And um, I had pictures all over my wall. I had a hammock in my room and I did lots of workouts every day and I got to eat good food and I got some massages and I got to meditate. So that's why I thought it was fun because I love, I love working out and I love um, doing things that my body can't do. So like pushing the limit. But how are you communicating? Because my understanding is you're learning how to eat and drink. You're having to relearn how to walk and talk. I, I guess I'm just trying to understand. How is that because there was a break from reality? And so that's why it was fun? So, like like the reality of what has happened hasn't quite set in? So part of some, some of both. So one of the things is that my initial, like when I was in a wheelchair, and my initial relearning how to walk, and my initial relearning how to talk, I don't remember. So I don't remember those days. When my mind came back, I was already, I had gone through different levels of the hospital. I was on the inpatient rehab, so I was already up to that level. And in my mind, I was just working out every day. And the reality, did not set in. I was, I knew pretty quickly when my mind was coming back that I had been a skier and I equivalented my brain injury like a torn ACL. I had gone through that before. And when you tear your ACL, you can't walk for a period of time. You're, you're, you can't put weight on your leg and you can't even get up and use your crutches. Like you can't move. 
And then you go through these different stages. So that's kind of what I was thinking is that, okay, well, been here, done this before. Like, I'll just go through these different stages. It's great. I have like really good food coming to me all the time because my, um, I would have food brought in to me every day and it was like exactly what right I, because you're at the hospital yeah and because my my um, older sister actually would bring in food from our house um, and she would make the meals and it was always what I wanted I got to choose every meal um, and then we would eat as a family um, in the in the hospital room so I was pretty happy it almost sounds like there was um like a bubble it's almost like they created a bubble for you right because it seems as though from what you're telling me that you did not probably fully know or realize the severity of your brain injury is that right yeah and it took me a long time to figure out the severity of my brain injury so after I left the hospital um I still, my mom would say my recovery was miraculous and I would be like, well, that's a mom thinking I'm a miracle. Like every mom thinks their kid's a miracle, like great. Um, And then people would ask me like how critical it was. And I was like, oh, not that bad. And then they would ask like if it was medically induced or natural. And I'd be like, probably medically induced, like, but it was natural. Um, It wasn't until my one year anniversary and that was when I met my doctor and I saw him crying when, when he saw me. And I met my first responders, the ski patrol, and I found out that they wrote my fatality report. And they didn't think, they thought I had a 1% chance of living. And so who I became and am talking with you, um, they fought for that chance, but they didn't really think it was going to happen. And so then all of a sudden I realized that it had been really critical. And all of a sudden, this platform was born to bring awareness to brain injury recovery. Because I also found out over the course of my recovery, that there's not enough awareness to the fact that you can recover. I went to a conference, and um, I was about four months out, five months out. So I was out of the hospital. Um, but I was not recovered or close to being fully recovered. My understanding is that you were out of the hospital. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were in the hospital for two months. Is that right? Yeah. And then following your release from the hospital, you were in a rehabilitative care for five days, five days a week, outpatient rehabilitative care. Yes. So I was living at home, but in rehabilitative care. And living at home, are you in Connecticut or are you in Utah at this point? I'm in Utah. I'm in Park City, Utah. You're in Park City, Utah. When you were in the hospital, you were in the Vancouver hospital for two months, or did they uh, transfer you to Utah? They transferred me. So I was in the Vancouver General Hospital, and then they transferred me actually while I was still in the coma Mm -hmm. to um, the Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. And then from there, you're doing five-day-a-week outpatient rehabilitative care Talk to me about what that care looks like. What different therapies are you going through at at that point? So I was going to occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy. So I was relearning how to 
do everything basically. Um, so relearning yeah. move and then relearning how to think things through. I, I had to relearn how to drive a car. Mm-hmm. My license was taken away from me. But I was incredibly fortunate that I could receive five days of outpatient therapy because that's not usually the option. And so I received some money from the Traumatic Brain Injury Rehabilitation Fund for the state of Utah. And one of the things that was so crucial to my recovery was that there was no financial constraints on it. Um, It wasn't that you had to have a low enough amount of money or a high enough amount of money um, because the amount of money that goes into a um, a brain injury recovery statistics say that if you're in a critical brain injury it costs you roughly four million dollars for your recovery that does not mean that the individual pays that much um the insurance does cover a lot of it like my medical learjet that flew me back was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars we didn't have to pay for that, um, but it, it does cost a ton of money, and your outpatient rehabilitation costs a lot of money, and most insurances have a cap, and they will only cover about 30 treatments or so, so even if you are making a recovery, they will stop paying for your recovery, and when they s- stop, yeah, that's when the Traumatic Brain Injury Rehabilitation Fund for the state of Utah kicked in, but only 28 states have any rehabilitation funding, and so it, it's so it can vary so dramatically, and it's really challenging because when I was doing the outpatient therapy, I, I couldn't drive a car, and I am not at all who is talking to you right now. Like people have even mentioned, like they have talked with me two years down the road and I wasn't who I am right now. Um, but especially going back to that rehabilitation time frame, it would have been so easy if I had gotten cut off and I still had detriments for them to become permanent disabilities. And then for me to live off of permanent disability insurance, for the rest of my life. And as a 22-year-old, that would be roughly 60 years. So by not allowing individuals to have enough opportunity to get the upfront care that they need, there are many individuals who are suffering from disability from a brain injury that could have been treated and still can be treated. still could be treated, yeah. Jamie, I do want to get to your advocacy because this is a very important part of uh, your story and a very important conversation. But what I did want to focus on just for a little bit longer is I wanted to focus on something that I had read, or actually I think maybe you and I had discussed this in one of our previous conversations, in that my understanding is that even while you were in the hospital and uh, preparing for release, and I guess also in the early in the early stages of your rehabilitative um, care, you were still focused on returning to professional skiing. Is that right in the beginning? Yes, um, up until the first winter, um, in, in like the middle of the first winter, um, I thought I was going to compete again, and I was just going to return to the life that I had previously had. And then in the middle of the winter, I began to realize that 
to be a professional skier, you you do fall a lot. And um, if I fell again, it could be much more dramatic than people without as much damage to their brain as I did. And I would be putting the support and love that I had received at risk. And it it really, really made me feel terrible to think that I might be making the choice to die before my mom in front of my mom if I went back to competing. And I couldn't do that. And so I stepped away from competing. And that's when I stepped into psychotherapy. I started going to see a therapist because I was having so much trouble letting go with that part of my life. You were saying, Jamie, that um, for a significant amount of time following the accident and the resulting severe traumatic brain injury, what was motivating you to recover and rehabilitate, what was motivating you to be so aggressive with your rehabilitation was your desire to return to the slopes as a professional skier. Is that right? Yes. I I did think I, I was planning on going back to competing. Um, but I just have always been kind of an overachiever and, um, put a lot of pressure on myself. That's something that I, I did before my brain injury. And, um, I do, I do now that's just part of who I am. And sometimes it's, it can be too much. Like sometimes I have to rein it in, but that is part of why I've accomplished so much over my whole life. And through my recovery is just. I, I had goals. You you wanted to go back and, and hit it again. I, I just knew I was going to be okay, and I was going to do what it took to become okay. And that's one of the big things that really helped with the fact that even though I didn't realize how critical it was and I, I thought I was going to be okay, I also had been coached my whole life. So I knew that anybody has a coach. No matter how good of an athlete you are, you have a coach, the top level. Um, so I would just keep going and doing rehabilitation. And then when that finished, I, I went to to more stuff. And um, I would hear and learn things about how important it is to stimulate your mind every day. And so I would make sure to be doing Duolingo programs every day. and and just What kind of programs? Duolingo. Like it's a language learning app. Oh, oh, Duolingo. Okay. Yeah, Duolingo. So just little things like that. But um, I, I kind of think a, a bit of it was that I wanted to return to competing professionally, but that went away after that first winter. And then I still had years of recovery and I continued to recover. And I think part of that was just who I was how I've been raised and that understanding of if you have goals, take set the steps to create those goals. Like we were talking about with learning tricks, it takes repetition and little steps and lots and lots of steps. Um, it's the same thing recovering from a brain injury. It takes repetition to rewire your brain and it takes building those habits and um, lots of little steps. You You can't jump make jumps um and so that's just um stayed very relevant you you talk about that first winter so 
and and again, I'm just trying to kind of follow your recovery story in a linear fashion right now. You talk about that first winter. So for several months, you are kind of moving forward with this mindset of I'm going to return to the slopes. I am a professional skier and a professional skier skis. That's the journey that you're on. But then that first winter, there's a shift. Something changes. What was that shift? How did you move from I want to ski again to what you're doing now, which is brain injury uh, advocacy? Well, I I did go back to skiing. Um, so I was skiing, but um, then when I progressed to the point where I was like starting to hit like boxes again, which is like warm ups for rails, but like easy boxes, uh, and I was doing 360s, I began to realize I had to like relearn all of my tricks all over again. Um, and it was kind of a month long process of just going in and out and in and out. And um, I didn't directly decide that I was never going to compete again. I just pushed it farther away. Um, so, so that got pushed farther away. And then some things like I didn't go back to do a back. I've never done a backflip on snow again. And last winter, like last fall was the first fall. I didn't think I was going to do a backflip on snow that year. Every other fall, I was like, okay, this is going to be the year that I do a backflip on snow. And it took until last fall for me to decide that that part of my life was over. Um, so there's been a lot of ups and and downs about it. It has. It's not like just like a clear line. It's not like I just decided it. Um, and there's a lot of things that tie into it. Um, I think something that helped me last year was that I, at at this time last year, I had made the documentary um I worked with the editor and the and we were getting um post-production and this sound design and um music composition and, and all these I mean, we hired a lot of people and all this stuff um and I I figured it was really time for a new chapter in my life but it it, it took it it was really hard to understand that it just so instantly went away and it it took me a long time to figure that out that it none of it was coming back what kind of support did you now need when you recognized that your identity as a professional skier was no more well i started going to psychotherapy and it's interesting. At that time, I didn't really think I needed psychotherapy. Why did you think you didn't need psychotherapy? I thought you only should go to therapy if you had big problems. Um, and it, I kind of thought it meant that you had issues. I thought I was supposed to be grateful that I was alive. Um, I was doing things like um, announcing at Winter Dew Tour, and I kind of thought that you go to therapy if you have a 
crippling life and I was supposed to like my, my life and it was supposed to be fine. Um, but my mom, she knew that I needed to go to therapy and she tricked me into going to therapy a little bit. She asked, she tricked you? How'd she do that? Um, she, there's an organization called High Fives Foundation that um, did some financial support where insurance doesn't cover. And so she said that they had already paid for my therapy. So if I didn't go, I would be wasting their money. And I could never waste someone else's money. So I went to the first one and I, I sobbed the whole time. And I realized how important it was to go to therapy. And so you go to psychotherapy. You are recognizing that this identity that you've created for yourself as a elite athlete must shift. It has to change. At what point do you recall the acceptance of that? Or are you still working on that? I was going to say, I, I don't think there's there's ever like a clear acceptance of it. It took um, until last fall was the first fall when, um, when the winter was coming and I didn't think that I was going to go do a backflip on snow again. Every other year, I was like, this is going to be the year that I do a backflip again on snow. Um, and now I realized that part of my life. Uh, that chapter has ended and um, I'm doing different things. Um, but it it's still something I, I work on sometimes that I was so dead set on it happening. And even though it's very like ambitious and a, a big challenge to go to the Olympics, I just, I, I was so sure I was going to do it. And then I was I was so sure that I was going to recover from my brain injury and I did recover from my brain injury and I didn't go to the Olympics and and now I, I do still um struggle with feeling confident that something is going to happen if it if it's a big dream. Yeah. I can imagine. I've been there. I've been there. I know that feeling. How did you transition into the role that you have now and talk about why uh, you leave a nonprofit. I want to talk about that, the organization, but you're also a brain injury advocate. I know that you have um, spoken to legislators on, on Capitol Hill and, uh, and you've also been quite candid about the access to health care that you received um, was a privilege that so many more, so many others just don't have access to. Yeah, well, um, we actually uh, took took some notes um, to talk with the Utah legislator about the same the same thing um, because the average monthly social security disability insurance for the state of Utah is one thousand three hundred and fifty one dollars and twenty two cents. That's not that much money. Um, and for a year, it goes to 16214 um, But then if you take in somebody like me who is 22 and they live on disability for their whole life, that's roughly 60 years of my life, that would result in $972,878. All of a sudden, that's a little bit of a bigger number. And then if you just take that number 
and you take it by the number of individuals the Brain Injury Alliance of Utah worked with in 2022 with resource facilitation. They worked with 150 individuals. So you take that number times 150, all of a sudden you're looking at $145 million, And the fact that there are so many of those individuals that do not have the resources to make a recovery and their disability is permanent because they don't have the opportunities is actually such a financial drain on the U.S. And part of the reason I'm such a strong advocate is because going back to my older sister, when my older sister went to Georgetown Medical School, she was taught that you had about two years to recover from your brain injury damage and that mostly neuroplasticity only happens in the cortical stages of development. So your birth, the first two years of life, or the first two years post-injury. Which we know is not true anymore. Exactly. But she was taught at one of the top medical schools that your brain does not have plasticity on its own for for the life of your brain, which now we know it does. We now know that your brain injury can recover at any time. Your brain has enough plasticity to rebuild these brain pathways at any time in your life. It, it is still thought that it's a little bit faster if you have more rehabilitation up front. Um, you can recover. It, it's a little bit smoother for that plasticity to form. Um, but it can happen at any time. And that understanding is not really understood. And what I mean by that is when I was about four months out of my brain injury, I went to a conference about brain injury. And every one of the speakers was giving kind of the same story about how they had a brain injury 20 years ago. These are their problems. They need to learn how to accept their problems. And this is why they don't have a good life. And my mom, my sister, and I were like, that's not happening to us. That's not what we're going to be doing. So you reject that, that thought process that you're going to be defined by the TBI. Yes, I rejected that and that I'd be 20 years down the road and, and I, I'd still have problems. And that's part of what I talk about, about climbing alternative peaks. My life is different. It did have dramatic changes because of my brain injury. That is a big portion of my life. And especially now that I have a nonprofit tied to it, I talk about brain injury just about every day. However, I climbed an alternative peak and my life that I'm living with my husband right now is wonderful, glorious. I, I have a multi-award-winning documentary. I'm going to, to speak to people who I'm leaving the audience in tears and, and feeling motivated that they can climb alternative peaks as well. And, and it's pretty beautiful. Um, but one of the big things is that other people can do that as well. Everyone's story is not the same. Everyone's brain injury is not the same. Um, however, I do, I do believe that we need to change the narrative behind brain injury. And what I mean by that is the fact that, like, more states, only 28 states have any federal funding. And it's not enough for community um, 
um, programs like the Brain Injury Alliance of Utah that do resource facilitation. Because as as we said, my brain injury took multiple years of recovery. And so once people passed that acute stage, they still need recovery quite often to be able to get back to being really efficient and, and comfortable independent adults. And so people need the opportunity. What's the name of your nonprofit? So we created the nonprofit Mo Crazy Strong Foundation. And you can look at mocrazystrong.org. Explain to me, what is the hole that you want this foundation to fill? So just changing the narrative. Um, and with part of that, we, we know so many other brain injury survivors that have had wonderful recoveries, but they don't stay connected to brain injury if it doesn't define them. And there's such little understanding about it, even though so many individuals have brain injury, that you're not going to tell your boss you had a brain injury because they're going to think that you're not going to be able to execute at the level that they want you to or things like that. So people don't stay connected to it if they have had what society would deem as a successful recovery. Um, so just raising awareness about the fact that you can have a recovery. Um, that's one of the really important points of us. And we made the documentary, um, which we have gone to um, multiple different film festivals and we've won multiple awards. You touched on this a little earlier. Explain to me how you were able to get the rehabilitative care that, that you needed. Where did insurance stop and then where did these other programs step in? And how is that emblematic of uh, the struggles that people with brain injuries might face just depending on where they live? So that's a great question. For my rehabilitative care, um, I actually was covered by Utah's Traumatic Brain Injury Rehabilitation Fund. And at that time, there were no financial constraints to who could be a recipient. So it wasn't like if you made um, under $100,000, you could be a recipient. Anybody could be a recipient to that. And they stepped in when insurance stepped out because most insurance companies have a cap and they will fund about 30 sessions, which means that even if you're still making progress, they will cut you off. And so then if you're cut off, you can't, most people can't afford um, to still get rehabilitation services. And only 28 states have any form of ACL, which is Association of Community Living. It's a federal grant, but it needs to be matched by your state. So your state needs to be putting out this amount of money if they want ACL to put out this amount of money. And only 28 states have that. And so what you're saying is part of your advocacy, because my understanding is that you went to Capitol Hill um, with your documentary, Mo Crazy Strong, to not only screen the documentary, but to raise awareness about this. Someone who's on the path to recovery, and, and, and right now we're talking about people who are insured. Um, someone who is insured and on the path to recovery may get cut off after a certain number of treatments. And if you live in one of these 28 states, you are then fortunate enough to then have access to this fund that will then pay for 
um, the remaining treatments that you might need, which you're saying is critical to recovery because basically you're paying up front for someone to recover as opposed to paying on the back end, which could potentially mean a lifelong of disability payments. Yes, exactly. How did you become aware of this and how did that awareness shift to advocacy? I became aware for my, my family when I was leaving the hospital. Um, that's how my, my mom found out about the rehabilitation fund. And during my therapy, that's in the rehabilitation fund, that's when I had memory back. And I understood that the reason I could go five days a week was because I was a recipient of this fund. And I understood how important it was that I could graduate from outpatient therapy, not be cut off. And so that has has really stayed with me the whole time. And it's interesting because my my accident was in 2015. That's a little while ago. And um, that first year of rehabilitation, when this idea got into my head, that was in 2016, which is a little while ago. Um, but then I continued healing, um, and I went back to college, and I graduated college, and then right after I graduated college, um, my sister went through her different bouts of cancer, and then she passed away, and so there was a lot going on, and we only established More Crazy Strong Foundation as a nonprofit in September of 2022, which is just a year ago. And in September of 2022 is when we established More Crazy Strong Foundation. And then February of 2023 was the first film festival that we had our global premiere for hashtag MoCrazyStrong. And we've, since then, we've gotten into 15 different film festivals. And like I mentioned, won multiple awards. One of them in just a couple of weeks ago at the Newport Beach Film Festival, we won Audience Award, which is really exciting with how our story resonates with the audience. And each film festival we've gone to, we've had such positive responses and people reaching out. And so in a way, I've had these ideas for many years, but I've just started actually being able to strategically bring these ideas to life. I know, Jamie, that one of the things that you have um, talked about wanting to push back on is this perception of you that your recovery is, you know, one of a kind, is miraculous, that your recovery is linked to the fact that you uh, were a former elite athlete. It, it seems as though as part of... Um, the narrative that you talk about wanting to change is you want to shift this narrative that uh, recovery from TBI or successful recovery from TBI um, can look like yours regardless of whether someone comes from this, like I said, elite athletic uh, background. How do you do that? Because I think there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this story and say, Hmm. Yeah. If I was someone who could compete at the Olympic level, then yeah, I could probably, you know, make a comeback. Um, but but you're saying that that this level of recovery and success is is available um, to, to many people, provided that they have the appropriate resources. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, like you said, um, 
my who I was before my brain injury is different than who many people are before their brain injury. So who exactly I am after my brain injury is probably going to be different than who you are exactly after your brain injury. However, I do firmly believe that if given the resources and opportunity, anybody after a brain injury can get back to a life they like to be living and contribute back to society in different formats. The, th the truth is, is that not everybody can have a recovery that they have no disability that society would deem. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if everybody takes in this mo crazy method and uses those these different modalities for creating the narrative of their recovery, they can get back to feeling much more comfortable with who they are. And and as you said, as you say, the, the truth is is that you're not going to have exactly the same recovery that I had, but you can't use that as your excuse. And that's kind of what you were you were saying is that a lot of people are going to look at this story and be like, oh, yeah, well, um, I'm not her, so I can't do it. And that's not true. You can't use the excuse that because you haven't had this. And one of the things that we are going to keep working on is sharing even more stories about the individuals we've worked on that did not have the background that I have, did not have anything connected to what I have and the recoveries that they are making, sometimes 20 years down the road. One of the ladies that is working on the um, curriculum right now, it, it's six classes um, taught by my mom, and she is 20 years post her brain injury, and she had no rehabilitation because nobody really understood that she had a brain injury. And she's making incredible changes to her life now. And her life before and after were very different from mine, but you can't use that as an excuse to why you cannot recover. I read that you have a saying, um, oh, wait, we first have to talk about the name change. Mo Crazy Method. First of all, what is the Mo Crazy Method? And for people who followed your career, they know you by another name. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Mo Crazy Method is a program that is virtual and you can do it from any state in the U.S. And it's led by my mom who had a lot of education about the brain before my brain injury. And she's now a Ph.D. candidate on mind-body medicine because she went back to get her Ph.D. in peer-reviewed research that shared why what she did for me would work for you. And so the Mo Crazy Method, she teaches it every other Friday, and you can look it up on our website um, and more information about it and register for it if you would like. Um, and so about the name change, Mo Crazy had been my nickname. Well, first of all, tell us tell us your maiden name. Tell us the name that people following your career would know you by. Yeah, so... Um, my birth name is Jamie Crane Mosey, and um, my nickname for my whole life had been Mo Crazy. So starting when I was a little child, my mom would call me her little Mo Crazy. 
because I was always daredevil and I was always jumping on trampolines and flipping and, and I love to do that. So I was her Mo crazy. And um, then Cray Mosey, the Mosey is French. So it's M-A-U-Z-Y. Um, and a lot of people mispronounce it. And the announcers would say, Jamie Crane Mosey, the Mo Crazy is now on course when I would do all my competitive stuff. And so I was kind of known as the Mo Crazy. And my little sister was actually, she still competes in half-pipe skiing, the same sister who watched my accident. Her name is Jeannie. And she was known by as Tiny Mo Crazy. And she's actually four inches taller than me. <laughs> so she's not tiny mo crazy anymore um but she was known as, as that when she got into the competition scene because i was mo crazy and she was tiny mo crazy tiny mo crazy i love it and then the mo crazy method is this uh modality of care that your mother developed um as part of your rehabilitation um process uh your mother who is uh, uh an early childhood brain specialist is that right early childhood yeah she yeah she studied early childhood brain development and i read somewhere that she uh mandated that you relearn algebra following your brain injury because she yep. wanted you to develop the critical thinking skills is yep. is that right that is oh, right. i would have been yeah. mad at my mom if she made me do that <laughs> <laughs> That was part of the first two years, and um, I did get mad at my mom a couple of times, and every time I got mad at her, she would ask me why why was she making me do this, and every time she'd ask me, um, I would say, because you love me, and you know it's the thing, I need to do it, um, but there were, there were many times the first couple of years that I got really frustrated. She would also... Because um, the right side of my body had been paralyzed due to brainstem damage. And so when I was at the house and I couldn't hold anything with my right hand without my hand shaking for a period of time. And instead of being like, oh, well, just hold it in your left hand. She would give me a glass of water and make me hold it in my weak hand. And I would shake and it would spill on the floor, and I would be super frustrated and embarrassed. I was a twenty, I was a twenty-three-year-old, and I couldn't hold a glass of water. That's really depressing. And so, she would make me make me fail. She would make me do it because if I had not spilled all that water in the kitchen, I would not have been able to now hold a glass of water without any hand tremors at all. And she was also smart about it. You know, she wouldn't give me uh, tomato juice on top of a white couch. She would give me water in the kitchen like you do with little kids. So when I spilled it, it was fine. But then the issue when you're having a brain injury, you have to develop a lot of things you do as kids. But if you're a three-year-old and you spill your water in the kitchen, you don't think anything of it and nobody else thinks anything of it. But if you're a 23-year-old and you can't hold water in the kitchen, you're really embarrassed. And demoralized. And the, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the big things that happens with brain injury recovery is people are so afraid to embarrass themselves that they don't push themselves. My guest, Jamie Mocrazy, elite athlete, champion skier, traumatic brain injury survivor, and now brain health advocate. Her award-winning film, Mo Crazy Strong, 
documents the story of her career-ending fall and the extraordinary journey of recovery. To find out more information about her organization, the Mo Crazy Foundation, Jamie's documentary, or how you can get involved in adaptive sports following brain injury, just check out the show notes. I'm Christina Brown Fisher, and thank you so much for tuning in to Me, Myself, and TBI.